Lord, that song expresses the longing of our hearts. That all praise would be to the Lord Most High. Lord Jesus, we gather here today to declare to one another and to you, it's true. There is a living Christ. There is a resurrected Jesus that has entered our lives, that has changed us, and to you we give all praise. Lord, we're going to open your word. We're going to hear about a sermon speaking about your nature, your work. God, speak into us your truth this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, as, as Randy mentioned. I wanted to mention next Sunday is a baptism service, which are high and special days around here. Uh, we've got 10 individuals that are going to be baptized. We're going to be doing the baptism live in our 9 o'clock service. It will be taped and shown uh, on, online as well and live stream then, and then we'll be hearing the testimonies in the 1030 service again. Uh, I want to encourage you to get here um, and get here a timely way. We are not only having uh, the guests of people that are being baptized, we're also having our Collingswood campus is joining us here because a couple of the folks that are getting baptized are from their campus, and we're, we're joining together, and some of them will be coming over to join us. So. Look forward to that time uh, as we celebrate together. I'm going to read 15 verses here in Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read fairly rapidly. Acts chapter 3, verse 11 through 26. And this is about the lame man who has been crippled from birth and is in his 40s. And here's what he says. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There are different subjects that attract conversations for some people while at the same time driving others away. We had a community, my community group and recent, a recent community group right before we got started, um, over to the side, some of the husbands were, we were sitting in a circle. Some of the guys were chatting away animatedly. And, uh, I looked over, we were trying, I was trying to, our group is not easy to pull rain in. So I was raining them in to get started. And, uh, I caught the eye of one of the wives and she was looking at me and she mouthed the word golf and raised her eyes. You know, if I raised up the subject vaccines, some people would love to get into a conversation about that. Most of us just want to be on it. Recently, I was watching a Sixer game and my wife came into the room. And as she came into the room, she sat down and she made this, this announcement. She said, now I'm here because I want to be with you. I already know you love Joel Embiid, so you don't need to tell me any more about him. There are different topics that raise different levels of interest, right? Some people are attracted. Some people are annoyed. Peter is going to preach a sermon that has a similar set of conflicting responses. Some passionately drawn to it. Some just find it irritating. The setting is Solomon's portico. Peter and John have just healed a lame man who is over 40 years old and has been crippled from birth. That's in the first part of, of, of chapter 3. They've now gone into the temple and now have come out and are meeting in a place called Solomon's Portico. And I just want to show this to you real quickly, what we're talking about. This is the whole temple structure, this giant facility with the four walls around it. This is the court of the Gentiles on either side. It was a massive area where literally thousands of people could gather. And this uh, is the temple structure itself. This is, this is actually where, where Peter and John have gone in and either at this gate or at the gate there, nobody's sure exactly where, they have uh, healed this man. And they have now come out. And over here, this, this big red-roofed thing I always feel not sure which, I want to give everybody equal time if you're way over here. This is called the, the Royal Portico. This is actually where the religious leaders met. If you may wonder why are the religious leaders always there, well, they're there because, if we can go back just for a second, they, they go back, because they're there because they have a big meeting place. But under this, this section here, this wall here, the front wall is where what is called Solomon's porch. And now if we can bring up that next picture, this is what it looks like underneath. Two column structure, open to the courtyard here, and but a large open area to meet in. It's where Jesus taught. We read in some of the gospel accounts. It is also where Peter is now addressing the crowds. They have left the temple with this guy hanging on to them, 
I think he was a little bit, he, he, he's, he's a, uh, seems like a gentle spirited guy and he's nervous with the crowds. He's never had this kind of attention before. Um, he's, as I mentioned last week, he, he's jumping all around with enthusiasm um, for the first time in his life, but he's now holding them as they come into this Solomon's portico. And as all the people have gathered, Peter addresses them with this sermon. And there's conflicting responses. Some of the people respond as chapter four will tell us as it begins, they're greatly annoyed. Those would be the religious leaders and some of the people attending them. They're annoyed by the message. They're annoyed by the, the, the inconvenience. It's going to cause them. The more they talk about Jesus, the more they talk about his resurrection. But in verse four of Acts chapter four, we find a very different response. Thousands, 5,000 of them will believe on Jesus Christ. So we come to this message recognizing its power to attract or to annoy. A great deal will depend on the posture one takes towards it. I encourage you, as we look at the five points of this sermon, and I'll tell you the first two are going to be longer than the others, so don't despair. As you look at this, I hope you'll come with an open mind and see how the sermon speaks to you. These five things that he addresses, the first of which is, this sermon talks about who Jesus is. In verse 12, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at us? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's, Peter says, why are you looking at me? I, I'm no wizard. I don't have the power. He says, why are you looking at me? I, I, I don't have, uh, I'm not some kind of holy man. I don't have a special piety. So where are they to look? Well, he's going to tell them in this sermon. He launches into a description of the one whose power did heal the man. It culminates in verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. A number of times in the next few chapters, we're going to see this phrase, name talking about the name of Jesus. And basically, name refers to everything that's true about a person, his character, his attributes, his reputation, his accomplishments. Peter is saying, there is nothing in my name or John's name that qualifies us for the action that has taken place. There is everything in the name of Jesus. I mentioned this story before. I just do it quickly. A number of years ago, the chaplain of the 76 is a close friend of many of us and a member of our church was Bruce McDonald. And I was the backup chaplain. I had the privilege to go to a lot of games during that, that time. And I remember one time I went into the game and before the game's going on, when the players are on the court, there's hardly any people in the auditorium in the facility. I got there early and I'd actually gone down, as I often would do, down by the court and try to invite guys that I knew sometimes came to chapel, would invite them or, or opposing players. So I was right courtside and I was right down in the corner and uh, hardly anybody in the stands. And all of a sudden I hear this voice and the voice says this, hey, who are you? 
And I turned around, it was Pat Croce, the president of the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, what he was asking is, who gives you the right to be standing right on court side while these guys are playing, talking to the players? So I turned to him and, and I'll tell you what I did not say. I did not say, oh, I'm Mark Willie. Played small forward, high school, little bit of college. Matter of fact, had a sweet jumper right from the corner, right here. I also did not say, I'm Pastor Mark Willie. I pastor church, FCC, Living Nativity. You may have heard of us. I'll tell you what I said. I squeaked out. Uh, uh, I'm here uh, doing chapel. I'm here for, in, I'm filling in for Bruce McDonald tonight. Here was the response. Oh, Bruce McDonald. Bruce, I love Bruce. Bruce is a great guy doing a great job. Have a wonderful night, chaplain. Now, what happened there? Here's what happened. I banked all my claims of worthiness on the name of Bruce McDonald. That's exactly what Peter is doing here. Peter is saying, I got no credits. I didn't, I didn't do this. Now, you might be thinking, if you've read the Gospels, and something, you may say, wait a minute. I mean, obviously, you didn't have any creds with, the, with Pat Croce, but these guys did do miracles. And, and, and Peter and John did miracles all the time. Well, it's the hand of Peter that was reached out to this crippled man. It's the power of Christ that raised him. Peter knew that. Peter is pointing the way to the name of Jesus and the, the character of Jesus. And he describes Jesus in this way, in these verses. And if you look at verse 13 through 15, you'll see this highlighted. He starts by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, which was just a way I want you to know exactly who the historical guy is I'm talking about. Here's who he is. He says in verse 13, he is God's servant. He's quoting from Isaiah 52 and 53, the clearest reference about the Messiah in the Old Testament, about him being the suffering servant. He's talking here about Jesus commissioning, that he has come as the representative of almighty Jehovah God. He's his servant. He's his commissioned spokesman. God chose him. God sent him. Secondly, he's the holy and righteous one in verse 14. He's talking about his character, sinless purity and goodness. The righteous one is a term that is used in the prophetic books to talk about the, the kingship of, of the, the one that would come and about his character being sinless and pure, righteous and holy. He talks about his capability. He's in verse 16, he's the author of life. He created all life. Death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead. Imagine listening Peter to Peter talk about this guy. Later in the book of Acts, there's going to be a scene where Paul has testified about Jesus and, and a Roman governor is going to write this. And he says this. He's writing actually to the emperor, and he said he talks about a dead man named Jesus who Paul says is raised from the dead. 
This is Peter standing there. He's saying, the guy that is raised here, that is running around, that is, that is bouncing around with enthusiasm, that's never walked before, has been raised by the author of life, by the holy and righteous one, by the very servant of the most high God, Jesus, who is alive, has been raised from the dead. Now, this description of Jesus is annoying if you are trying to have a managed Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his great work, The Mere Christianity, talks about how people want to embrace Jesus or, or think positive thoughts about Jesus, but it's in a managed sense. Here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Peter presents a perspective of who Jesus is. The second thing this sermon gives that can be both appealing or annoying, it talks about what you have done. In verses 13 to 17, Peter doesn't just talk about who Jesus is. He talks about what they did in light of who Jesus was. He says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He's the commissioned representative of our, our God, the God of our fathers, the God of Israel, the, the Jehovah God, Yahweh God. So what did you do with his commissioned representative? Did you welcome as God's representative? He tells us in verse 13, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He says, Pilate thought better of Jesus than you did. He then goes on in verse 14 and he says this, he's the holy and righteous one. He has the character of holiness. Did you honor his character as being worthy of love and adoration? In verse 13, he says, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. The guy that would be let go by the, by the leader. He came as the one who is the author of life. And in verse 4 to 15, he's basically saying, did you bow before him and give thanks for his creating you? You killed him. Now you may hear all that and you may say, well, shoot, they were a bunch of idiots. I mean, I, no wonder they got the hammer dropped on them from Peter in this sermon 
killing a good guy like Jesus, inexcusable behavior. But Mark, Mark, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I didn't do that. I wasn't there. Peter's goal was to help them see their sin. He did it in a very direct way. But there is a relevance to his message in 2022, Burlington County, New Jersey. Because the titles that are used here of Jesus Christ and the way he is presented to us speak to our own flippancy toward Jesus. It is an outgrowth of our own failure to consider the significance of these titles. So let me just run back through them one more time. He's the author of life. Jesus Christ is the author of every living entity in the cosmos. More specifically, he's the creator of you. You are not a random compilation of billions of atoms. You are not just the product of a chance development over millions of years. You are designed by God. Your life then has purpose and meaning. But it also means that as a being who is directed, whose creation is directed and orchestrated and designed by God, you have also been designed with the purpose of living your life in relationship with God, to live according to the ways he says are the best ways for you to live your life. That to do life with him, to do life the way he knows is best for you, is to live the way life was designed to be with God at your center. He is the holy and righteous one. Sin is aberrant and it is a distortion of the way life ought to be. He's the standard. He's the one that is the measure of the life that you are called to live and given the gift to live. Sin is rebellion against God's way. Sin is rejection of God and his purposes for your life. He created you to do life with him, to enjoy him. And sin at its most foundational level, and actually this is a beautiful portrayal of God and you. Sin at its most foundational level is betrayal. It is saying to the God who says, I created you to do life with you to live and to enable you to live life as I've designed it to be, a life that has joy and peace and contentedness. But you spurned me as the center of your life. It's what sin is. It is turning. It's why the Bible constantly refers to sin as spiritual adultery. It is betrayal of our ultimate life partner. He is then the servant commissioned to come among us. The third part, him being a servant among us, doesn't really make much sense until you realize he's the author of your life, that he is the standard of holiness and righteousness, and that we have spurned him. And yet in the face of that spurning, he comes among us to be the suffering servant. He tells us here, as we look at this passage in verse 18, he says an amazing thing to these people. He says, you did it ignorantly. 
he really cuts the, even the religious leaders a pass, and he says they, did it. they didn't understand all the significance of who and what they were doing to the who. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how, did not know how it all fit together. These Jews did not see the depth of evil in their behavior until they saw the nature of the one who came among them. Maybe you see things in a similar way. Maybe this morning God wants to re-impress upon some, to impress upon some for the initial time, the reality of who it is that has come, who it is that has designed you, who it is that wants to do life with you, who it is that lays out these standards of righteousness. It is one that is more for you, who is safer to you than anyone you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe you've looked at sin as a sliding scale and a comparative. And there has to be the wake-up call to, 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 to look at our own lives as these people were forced to do. To see the significance, not of their sin compared to others, but in the standard and measurement of the holy God who had loved them, who now came among them and modeled what righteousness looked like. I was talking to a guy recently. I have his permission to share this. He was telling the story of when he was younger. He had a severe issue with alcohol, and he had just come to Christ and uh, was talking to his grandmother about how, how much he struggled with the gay lifestyle. And she made him read, she asked him to read 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is a list of lifestyles that keep people from God. He saw there people who practice homosexuality. And then he saw drunkards. That's why she had him go there. And then he said, with a little twinkle in his eye, and I love the way he said it, he said, as I looked at that passage and I saw my sin listed what I saw as other people's sin, I also recognized there were probably a number of things in that passage that spoke to me. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters, and in it, it's a story of a senior uh, demon, Screwtape, who's speaking to Wormwood, a, a junior associate. And in this, this brilliant writing, the senior devil is presented as talking to the junior associate with this statement. He said, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy is God. Murder is no more effective than cards. If cards can do the trick, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What Peter is saying to these people is the same thing he would say to you, to me. You must see that your sins are the ones that qualify you for judgment and separation from God. You begin to understand why some people find this message annoying. The third thing, again, we're going to move faster on these. It talks about what God did in verse 18. 
what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled two very important concepts here. Number one, it says, God the Father sent Jesus here to suffer. The word suffer, pathos, uh, the word we get passion from, is actually talking about all of the end-of-life experience of Jesus in that passion week where he is betrayed, where he is uh, where, where, where he's rejected, where he suffers the beatings and culminating in the work of the cross. God the Father ordained that. He chose that, that Jesus would come as the sufferer sent for people who have recognized their sin, who need forgiveness. But he also sent him in a plan. He planned for Jesus to suffer. A number of these verses that we're not taking time to highlight basically are talking about the prophecies of which there are hundreds of Jesus coming. That they, God had planned this. Though the people have guilt on their hands, and he certainly is acknowledging that in, in having Jesus killed, his coming was by the God who had orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fourth reality that he presents in this sermon is it talks about what you must do. He says it here in verse 19, repent and turn back. The word repent is from two words that actually mean change your mind. Have a different perspective. Look at yourself and things differently, he says. And then turn back. Turn back to what? I believe he's saying, turn back to Jesus. Take another look. Repent, change your mind. Now gaze at the one that came among you who healed this man. It is his power. My hand lift him up. His power that did it. But understand that he came. He lived out the passion. He chose the cross for you. And so Peter says, take another look. Consider who he is. Consider what you've done. And consider what he's done for you. The fifth thing says this. It talks about what God will do. Your sins will be blotted out. He's talked here about if you repent of your sin, if you, by faith, the term is used there, faith of Jesus, If you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins will be blotted out. This is a cool expression. Uh, In the papyrus of the day, and I read this by enough offers and didn't know for sure, I really think this is a reality. The papyrus was a, a thick parchment, hard parchment, and basically... The ink that they used in that day did not have the, the acidic substances that our ink has. And so it would, it would just sit on the parchment almost like uh, water. It would go in a little more, but basically it wasn't absorbed. It didn't have what, what ink has today, an acidic part that will bite into the parchment. So what you could do, you did write things but it could then be wiped off and you could reuse that parchment. It was almost like a tablet. Think of a whiteboard. Think of a whiteboard that is covered with all of your sin. Be a big board, right? 
a whiteboard that talks about all the things that we've said and done, all the things that drove our heart, all, all the ways we, we, we didn't act out, but we looked at people with hatred and animosity and envy and, and desire for them to get theirs. All those things are on the board. And it says, now picture somebody coming along with the, the cloth and just wiping off all those things. And he says, this is why Jesus came. He came to wipe the board of your life clean. It's what God does. And he speaks to people that need life, that need forgiveness, that need change. This is a sermon that could be evoking very different responses. The religious leaders and others with them become greatly annoyed by it. The more the disciples talked about them, the more inconvenient it was for the religious establishment. They didn't like the fact that it put everybody on equal sp spiritual footing. Sinners in need of forgiveness, broken people who needed fixing, including them. It said that their lives were not their own. The author of life claims authority over their lives. It annoyed them that it said that Jesus was the only one who could deliver them, change them, take the whiteboard filled with their sins and wipe it clean. And so to the proud, the self-sufficient, the religionist, the whole message was pretty much annoying. But there were others to whom it was life. It offered a forgiveness they could not gain on their own. It offered a welcome to God's family they could not imagine. It offered a heavenly future they could not merit. And so dozens of them, scores of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and received him into their life as Savior and Lord. Who are you today? Is it annoying to think of, I mean, I got to accept Jesus. I mean, I, I can handle it if you say he's a great teacher, he's a good guy. I mean, I think there's a lot of good. I think he's, I believe he's a real historical figure. But God, the creator of, of me, come on. Is it annoying to face the fact that you are a sinner? you can't merit or earn eternal life, that this is not about what you will do. It's about what Jesus has done. Will we allow our annoyance to keep us from embracing the greatest news that has ever been offered to humankind? The author of life has come and died and borne the penalty for our sin that we might find life in him. I don't know where you are today. 
You may be a believer and have embraced Jesus for many years. I, I hope God will just remind you of the glory of the grace in which you stand. But I also hope that those of you that are here or watching online that have never had this so personally focused and, 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 and to the point that it feels somewhat unsettling, maybe a little bit irritating. But Peter loved these people enough to say, what about you? What about you? What are you going to do with Christ? The question's important because it truly does determine one's eternal destiny. I'd like to pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. God, it is awesome for me to think that every person in this room, their heart, their thoughts are wholly known by you. And Lord, I pray that you who look at their hearts, may your spirit speak into their lives. Lord, may they come to yield, surrender, and embrace this glorious Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed, except for me and the Lord. Maybe you're here today and God is speaking to your heart and saying, you know, I had you here in this room this morning or watching online today because I wanted to tell you about my son. And I wanted to tell you how much he loves you and has come to give you life. Maybe God is speaking to your life and heart right now, and if he is, you know it. You like say, Pastor Mark, I, I'm not sure I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not sure I've, I've, I've embraced Jesus as the Lord and center of my life in the way you're talking about today. Would you pray for me with every head bowed and every eye closed? I'm just going to ask you, would you slip up your hand? Say, would, would you pray for me, Pastor Mark? I feel God speaking to my heart. Yes, thank you. There are other, yes, thank you. Just slip it up. Thank you. Are there others? Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we come to you. We love your word. It speaks to us, challenges us, convicts us, but it changes us. Lord, you know every person whose hand was raised. God, how I pray that you might enable them by your grace to settle this matter with you, that they might embrace your son once forever as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close in a second. You may have raised your hand this morning. You may not have raised your hand, but are going to walk out and think, yeah, I should have. Um, I'd love the chance to share with you a little bit personally, just in a one-on-one, -on -one, as would any of our pastors or members of our female staff can talk with you about how you can be sure 
about your salvation with Jesus Christ, we'd love the opportunity to do that. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.